Good morning. My name is Luke. I'm one of the elders here um, at Life Church. Uh, and I had a little um, analogy, a little um, story to tell. But actually, I really uh, was thinking about that song we just sang. Uh, our God is the lion and the lamb. If you've been around church for a while, maybe you're used to a phrase like that. If you haven't been, that's an odd thing to say. How is a person, firstly, how is a person a, an animal? A, a, but then how are they both a lion and a lamb? This morning, that's one of the things I think will come out, actually. Not explicitly, but these ideas that actually the God we worship, Jesus Christ, is the lion. He's the great king. He is the one who, actually, we must take very seriously. You don't muck about with a lion, do you? You take them seriously. We might have only ever seen them in a cage. Some of us may have seen them on safari, or um, I hope not just by chance in the wild, but you don't mess with a lion. But the Lord Jesus is also the lamb. He is the one who chose to become a sacrifice for us. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So we're going to be looking at Matthew's gospel. We're going to be seeing that Jesus, uh, who Jesus is, and we're going to be seeing that Matthew says something incredibly important in this passage. We're going to read the whole chapter. And the thing we're going to see is that Matthew says that Jesus Christ is the God of Israel returned to his people. The God of all creation come to us in the flesh. And what we will also see is if that is true, which it is, then we must soberly respond to that truth. Now, my friend Ray is going to read Matthew chapter um, 3. So, Ray, do you want to come up? Uh, and we will read along in the ESV together. It will be on the screens. Um, but uh, otherwise, you can just listen along uh, to Ray. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who has spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even, though, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to baptize you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. 
And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to the rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Brilliant. Thank you, Ray. So today, as we continue our series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew, we find ourselves in chapter 3. And Matthew opens this passage looking at the character of John the Baptist. Now, John is mentioned in all four of the Gospels that we have. And Matthew here explains that John had to come to prepare the way for Jesus. And he explains this by quoting the prophet Isaiah, who spoke hundreds of years earlier and who himself, Isaiah, declared that one day someone would come to prepare the way. And so he says this in Matthew 3, verse 1 to 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, Matthew will go on from here to look at John's life, think about some of the things he did and said, his interaction with Jesus. But let's just stop for a second and ask a question. This passage that Matthew just quoted from Isaiah, is that really about John? Is that really about John the Baptist? Now, don't get me wrong, it is about John the Baptist. But did you see there were two characters in the prophecy that was quoted? I'll read it again. I'll read it now from Isaiah 40, which is where Matthew is quoting it from, and read a few of the verses beyond it, the wider context. Isaiah 40 says this, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see, this prophecy is about a voice, a messenger, one who has news to tell, but a messenger is only as important as the message they have to bring. And what is the news this messenger has? The God of Israel is returning. Prepare the way of the Lord. The prophet, sorry, the messenger that Isaiah speaks of is one who says Yahweh, the God of Israel, will one day return to his people. The word Lord is the Old Testament translation of the divine name, sometimes used as Yahweh. And so Isaiah is clear, God will one day return and someone will be calling out, make way, he's coming. You see, Isaiah prophesied at a time when the people of God had repeatedly for generation after generation been rejecting their gods. He was prophesying at a time where actually their their exile, their being kicked out of the land was imminent. It was going more and more wrong for them. And they were asking the question, will God ever be with us again? Isaiah says in this bleak context, one day a voice will cry out loud. God is returning. Get ready. That voice that cries out, Matthew tells us, is John the Baptist. But much more importantly, what does that prophecy tell us about Jesus? If you were here last week, you'll know that all this term, 
we're looking at Matthew's gospel beginning to end and letting Jesus ask us a question. We're letting Jesus ask us the question that he asked his disciples in Matthew 16. He said, who do you say that I am? And last week, uh, you might remember, we looked at the first verse of Matthew's gospel when we saw that Jesus is the promised human. He's the one that all of human history had been waiting for, even if we didn't know it. He's the one that all the promises of God find their yes in. And one thing that's important, maybe to add to last week's message that I brought, is that Jesus isn't just promised, but he's the promised human. Jesus was fully human. He was born a man. He knew pain and hunger. He knew joy and family, friendship, hard work, and even death. Jesus Christ was fully human. Hallelujah. Because to have a saviour who is fully human means we don't have a saviour who's like that person who says to you, I know exactly what you're going through. But they don't, do they? They don't know exactly what we're going through. But to have a saviour who is human is to have a saviour who can identify with us, who has walked through it with us, who understands us and even mediates for us between God and man. To have a saviour who is human who is human, is more than all those things, to have one who was able to take the sin of humanity on himself as the one and only sinless human. It is good news that Jesus was fully human. But he was not merely human. He was fully human, but he was not merely human as you and I are. And Matthew starts this chapter, chapter three, quoting Isaiah saying, Yahweh is returning to his people. And yes, Matthew then talks for a few verses about the messenger, about John the Baptist. But what do we see after that? Yahweh will return and here walks Jesus. Matthew's clear. Jesus is the God of Israel returned to his people. You see, Jesus is God fully God. He is the eternal son of the father, the creator of the ends of the earth. He is the one God. And Matthew tells us that very clearly. Now, we're Westerners, we're modern Westerners. We'd love a little sentence that says, Jesus is God, full stop. Matthew, in an an, uh, Eastern context, is saying that incredibly clearly. That's what he's doing here. Prophecy says, one day Yahweh will return. The story says, in walks Jesus. That is what Matthew is doing here. Jesus is God, returned to his people, Yahweh himself with us. Matthew's not shy about what the good news of Jesus is presenting. Jesus is no mere radical teacher, no mere freedom fighter, no mere religious figure. He is the God who has come to us. And Matthew beautifully goes further, doesn't he? Jesus doesn't just walk into the scene, he's then baptised. And what's the picture that we get? As he comes up out of the water, the heavens open and the spirit descends on the son and the father speaks affirmation over him. Matthew begins Jesus's ministry here in chapter three, the first kind of adult part of Jesus's life that we see in the gospel. And he says, Yahweh's returned. And what does he look like? Father, son and spirit. Hallelujah. Jesus walks into the scene at his baptism And Matthew tells us God is here. Though creator, he became like one of his creatures. Though almighty, he took on our weakness. 
though eternal, he stepped into time. Matthew is clear. God has come. But if Matthew makes that clear, he makes a second thing clear too. If God really has come to us, then each of us must with soberness respond. John the Baptist's job was to prepare the way for Jesus, for God to return to his people. And in Isaiah 40, it describes that by giving an image where valleys are filled in, where mountains are made low. Essentially, it's kind of a cosmic rolling out of the red carpet. This is something which you would do if a king or a noble person would come to your city. You would make sure the roads were were good, they were smooth, so the king could come in. I mean, we still do this today, right? Have you ever seen a city before and after the Olympics come? Suddenly all the potholes are filled in. Suddenly the public transport works. And so John is preparing the way for Yahweh to return to his people. But he doesn't get a shovel out and start filling in potholes. No, what does he do? The way he prepares is he declares to anyone who's listening, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John knows Christ is coming. The kingdom of heaven is near. And whether people were prepared or not, now is the time to respond. The phrase is at hand that's used in in verse 2 there. There's an urgency to it. One commentator, R.T. France, puts it like this. This time has now come, that phrase, or is at hand, does not do justice to the perfect tense of engizo, which is the Greek verb, which means literally has come near. It introduces a state of affairs which is already beginning and which demands immediate action. John's summons is urgent. The time for decision has already come. The kingdom of heaven is coming, but it had already come because Jesus was here. And my friends, this morning, we need to know the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The day to respond to Jesus is not tomorrow. It is today. God has returned to his creation and it demands a response from us. And there is no time to waste. Our lives are short. Let's be honest. The day to respond is today. And so what is that response? Well, John says, repent. Repent. Repentance, again, that's a word if you are new, if you're exploring Christianity, you might not have heard that word or maybe heard it a little bit. If you've been around church for a while, you would have heard that word many times. What does it mean? Well, it literally, if you look at how the word is made up, means to change one's mind. That's an okay definition. That's quite good, but it's lacking a little bit. Just on a little tangent, um, there's a fun word you can learn this morning called etymology. Lots of you will know this, but I'm not very good at vocabulary. Um, Etymology means how is a word made up? Sometimes we can be a bit guilty of looking at the true meaning of a word, i.e. how the word's made up, and think we know what that word means. We've got to be a little bit careful of that. I'll give you an example in in modern language. Um, This is for my Spanish speakers among us. Um, Who knows what the word burrito means? It means it's a food, right? It's like rice in a wrap and meat. Who speaks Spanish and knows literally what it means? A little donkey. So burrito means little donkey. That's literally what it means. Or the word gymnasium. Uh, the gymnasium is where you exercise or where, where you do gymnastics. The, the Greek word that it comes from means naked. 
because the Greeks exercise naked. And so etymology is helpful, but maybe it always doesn't give us the best definition. And so to repent means to change one's mind. Okay, that's, that's an okay definition, but let's go deeper. How does the Bible talk about repentance? When John shouts, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, some people might think repentance must mean Jesus is coming, look busy. God is watching, be more Christian. But no, repentance is not external behaviour change. Repentance doesn't mean change how you look to the world or just kind of change a bit of behaviour. Now, true repentance does lead to change behaviour, but itself is not an external thing. It's something much deeper than repentance is. Okay, well, it's not, if it's not changing external behaviour, maybe you think, oh, repentance means to really beat ourselves up about sin. Be really, oh, I'm a terrible person. I'm wicked, I'm wicked. Now, don't get me wrong, our sin is revolting. It is. Some of you will know the depravity of your own hearts. I know mine. Sin is serious. But no, repentance is not self-pity. It's not self-punishment. That's not what it is either. It's not what John is calling us to and Jesus will later call us to. Well, is repentance maybe a bit of a ritual? Every time we go astray from God, is it a bit of a prayer or a bit of a, a ritual we do to get ourselves back on track? Well, I think, I think it includes regularly bringing ourselves back to God. Yes, there's a goodness in that, but it must be bigger than that. There's something more going on. So what does repentance mean? What does the Bible say when it talks about repentance? Well, John can help us. And actually, it's John's clothing, which I think makes it obvious for us all. Let's read John, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 4. John wore garments of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Obvious, right? We now know how to repent, don't we? Because he wore camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. I'm wearing a leather belt around my waist, but it was probably a bit different. John was dressed like an Old Testament prophet. That's what I'm getting at. John was dressed as an Old Testament prophet. He actually was dressed quite like how Elijah was described to be dressed. And that's very fitting because John is in the long line, the last, in fact, of the Old Testament prophets who were preparing the way for the Messiah to come. And what was the job of the Old Testament prophets? They called to the people of God, repent, turn back to him. You see, the people of God, the thing that the prophets were raised up to do was to call the people from their sin. They were going their own way. They were worshipping their own gods. They were selfishly saying, I don't want God anymore. I want this instead or that instead. And the job of the prophets was to say, no, turn back. Bring your whole lives back to him. Come back into relationship with God. The call to repent is the call to be faithful to him again, to trust him, to obey him, to live for him. In other words, a call to repentance is to not just turn a part of yourself, but turn your whole life and give it back to God. Repentance is not merely external behaviour change. It is a heart, a whole heart response that says, no, Lord, I live for you now, which of course spills over into our behaviour and actions. It's not self-pity and, and kind of beating ourselves up. It's saying, no, I can't do it by myself. I've tried and I've failed. It's turning back to God and saying, no, Lord, you can save me. You can forgive me. You can purify me and give me the strength to live for you. Repentance is a whole life turning. That's how the Bible speaks of repentance. And so John declares, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because he knows that God is returning to his people. And there is a sober reality to that. 
There is a level of weight that comes with the truth that God has come back and we must repent. The only fitting response to God returning is to give our whole lives to him. Now you might say this, it's a little bit serious, Luke. It's a little bit radical. It's a bit over the top. But my friends, we can't be complacent with these things. It's all too easy to just go off the boil with Jesus. He started our number one, and if we really think about it, he's probably our number three or our number four at the moment. John the Baptist himself gave a, gave a scathing rebuke to the religious leaders who were around at the time. The Pharisees and Sadducees who were looking on at the baptisms. He turned to them and he spoke and he said this in Matthew 3, 7 to 10. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. Don't presume it, he said. Don't presume to say we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. These are religious leaders. And yet John says clearly to them, you can't just presume just, oh, well, I'm one of God's people. Yeah, but if you live a life totally rejecting him, not caring about him, that's, that's, what are you relying on? He says seriously to the religious leaders there, the wrath of God is coming. Repent. Trust in him and him alone. That is the only way to be saved. And today, if we're honest, there are many modern excuses. There are many modern excuses. I go to church. That's something people say. I go to church. I, I love church. <laughs> Absolutely love church. But only Jesus saves, not church. Some people might say, well, my parents are Christians. I'm a Christian kind of by birth. No, no, each person must choose to give their life to Jesus for themselves. Praise God, you have Christian parents, but you must choose it for yourself. People who don't believe in God at all say, no, 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 all this kind of wrath of God. No, no, I'm a loving person. Isn't that enough? I'm a loving person. But what about the sin deep in your heart that you hide from people and that you hide from God? You need a saviour. Each one of us does. Even the, the presumption that we can so easily make, I believe in Jesus, at least up here, and yet our hearts and our lives live as if the truth of Jesus made no difference at all. John the Baptist said clearly, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He warns us. Don't let it just be a head knowledge. You can't academically follow Jesus. You have to live your life for him. I know it's a strong challenge. I know that's a strong challenge. And that be, might be unsettling for those of us who maybe don't take the call to follow Jesus seriously. That might be unsettling for us too if some of us approach, some of our approach to evangelism is, well, they're getting on okay without God. Why, why rock the boat? But my friends, only Jesus saves. Only Jesus saves. Don't lull yourselves or others into false comfort. The thing we don't like talking about, but the truth is the judgment of God is coming on all of us because we have all sinned and fallen short and it's only Jesus who is able to save. Repent and trust in him. He is able to forgive. He will forgive. He will save. But there is no other way. 
Because you see, Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. John says, I, I, I put you in water. It's a symbolic thing. It's, a, it's an external thing. I, I baptize in water. But when the Messiah comes, when Jesus comes, he will baptize not merely with water, but by the Holy Spirit and fire. Verse 11 says, I, John speaking, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The spirit and fire are images of judgment. They're images used in the Old Testament for judgment. And what's really important that we stand and know, if Jesus is God, come to us. If he is the true and living God, then he is the only one worthy to judge. He is the only one who has the right to weigh our lives. And the truth is, each one of us are found wanting. Each one of us are rightly judged guilty for the way that we have lived and rejected the God who loves and made us. And so there are only two options with Jesus. We either reject him and accept that we're guilty or we throw ourselves on his mercy and receive forgiveness that he won by his blood. Jesus is the judge. But the Holy Spirit and fire are also images of purification. They're images in the Old Testament used in many places like Isaiah of purification as well. Think about the story of Noah and the flood. The world was judged and yet God saved for himself a people. Think about the story of Israel in the wilderness and then in the land again and again. When the judgment of God came on them, he always preserved a remnant. He purified for himself a people. And so the spirit and fire are also pictures that God does not give up on his people. God is a God who preserves, who saves, who purifies those who trust in him. We're not a people who deserve his saving. Don't, don't hear that. We don't deserve his saving. We throw ourselves on his mercy. We trust in him. We realise we need him. They're the people that he preserves and saves. We're not a perfect people. We're not those who have made it. We're those who hold on to Jesus as our only hope. And God is faithful to us. My friends, give your life to Jesus, your allegiance, your whole self, for he is the only one who can save. But he hasn't just saved you from something. He hasn't just saved you from judgment. He saved you for something. He saved you for himself. Yes, there is a, a sobriety to the call to repentance. It's serious. The consequences are ultimate and eternal. But the choice isn't between eternal separation with God in judgment on the one hand and a terrified existence in his presence on the other. No, no, no. What Jesus saves you into is the great joy of knowing him. Because who is this God who's come to us? If Jesus is the God who's returned to us, then he's the kind of God who does return to his people. Jesus is not the God who stands at a distance and gives up on us. He's the one who draws close. He's the one who comes to be one of us, to identify with us. The author of life who chooses to die that he might save us. What kind of God is he? 
He's the God who came to save us. Jesus does not forget his own. He does not reject us. He never gives up on us. Jesus, the eternal God, stand in awe, is also named love. And he became human that we might be saved from judgment. For those who trust in something else, you should be sitting uneasy. But blessed is the person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. And this is where we'll start to wrap up. Because at the end of our passage, Jesus arrives. At the end of chapter 3, Jesus comes in to be baptised. And if this term we've been asking these questions, who is Jesus? Then who better to ask than the words of his eternal father? The heavenly father speaks over the Lord, over Jesus, as he comes out of the waters of baptism. From verse 13 we read, And Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptised by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. The father speaks affirmation over his son. And in this short sentence, he echoes two very important Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah to come. Firstly, he says, this is my son. And he echoes there Psalm 2. A psalm about the great king of Israel, a mighty warrior who would come and vindicate the people of God, a saviour who would rule in power. Psalm 2 verses 7 to 9 says this, The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You're my son. That's, that's what the father is referencing there. He's drawing in those ideas that Jesus is the great king. He's the one worthy to judge. He's the one who we stand in awe at. But the father also references another passage. In the words, with whom I'm well pleased, the one in whom my soul delights. This is what he's referring to in Isaiah 42. If Psalm 2 is about the great warrior king that would one day come, Isaiah 42 sits in a part of the prophet's writings that are known as the servant songs, a part of the prophecies that speak about the gentleness and sacrifice of the Messiah. We read in Isaiah 42, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. That's the reference, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint 
or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Jesus, God with us, is also the one who came as a suffering servant, the one who would save us from judgment by dying for us, bring justice by taking on our wrongdoing, who calls us to obey him so that we might live in the fullness of life with him. My friends, this is Jesus. Awesome, almighty God, come in the flesh. The judge of the world who longs to pour out mercy on his people. The author of life who chose death that he might defeat it for you. God has come and we cannot ignore that. The only fitting response to that is to repent and to repent today because he deserves your whole life. And by the nail-marked hands that he wears, he extends grace to each one of us. Amen. We're going to respond. Why don't the bands come back up? But we're going to respond. For some of us, this will be an opportunity to repent for the first time. This morning you've heard the gospel and you do believe that Jesus is God that he came to us, that he died for us and that he rose again, defeating death. If that's you, in a second, I'll give you, a, I'll give you an opportunity to respond that you can turn from your old life, that's repentance, and live now for him because he offers you mercy. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you himself. There's a second group who I think, just as I was preparing this, uh, the sense that we're living with a sense of complacency. Jesus has gone from number one to number three or number four, and we often go through the motions. Maybe we don't take God seriously when we should. God is wanting to call you back. God is wanting to call you to again repent, turn, and follow him. Know the joy and the mercy and compassion of your Father in his presence, not living for yourself, but for him. If either of those two groups are you and you want to respond, why don't the rest of us, if we want to, we can close our eyes because it's about us and God. You don't have to, but you can. But if you want to respond, if either of those two groups, why don't we stand now and we're going to pray. Thank you, Lord. This is about us and God. This is an opportunity to take him seriously. Lord, if you've been speaking to our hearts this morning, stir us now to respond, I pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Father God, I pray for us where we've become complacent. Jesus, I pray for us where we have gone off the boil. We're actually being in your presence. It doesn't really bother us anymore. We ask by your spirit, you would open our eyes again. 
Father, we turn to you. We choose to turn to you again, to turn away from our old lives and turn back to you. In you is fullness of joy. In you is salvation. In you is the life that you made us for. Not an easy life, but a good life. Lord Jesus, we turn to you again. And for those of us here who are asking the question, is it true? Is it true? Either did Jesus really rise from the dead or maybe I can believe that, but would he really die for me? Jesus, speak into our hearts, I pray, for that individual. Let them know you did that for them, Lord Jesus. Speak now by your spirit. And for all of us who know and follow Jesus, we're going to take communion together. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup when he'd given thanks. He gave it to them saying, drink it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day comes when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Lord Jesus, as we, your followers, take communion this morning, we thank you that your blood covers us. We don't turn to you as people who've made it. We don't repent because we're perfect. We repent because we need you. We need your sacrifice. Jesus, your blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. You tell us. We don't think that. You tell us that. We trust it, Lord Jesus. And so as your children, as we take this communion, we stand righteous. We stand in confidence of our relationship with you the Spirit and our Heavenly Father. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have done it. There is nothing else left to do. You finished the job. We give you our lives again and we worship you for who you are. In Jesus, your precious name we pray. Amen.